Coup de gras is a term for a death blow which ends the suffering of a severely wounded person, often on the field of battle. A literal translation of the term is blow of grace. In eras when wars were fought with spears and swords, the blow of grace would often be administered by a thrust to the heart. For those dying on the field of battle, this finishing stroke could be a severe but welcome mercy. Genesis 42 is a blow of grace that thrusts into the hearts of Jacob's family. After many years of conflict, self-serving, and faithlessness, they are brought to a reckoning. They are going to be doomed to die unless they will acknowledge God, surrender to him, go his way, and allow self to be put to death in the process. Now, our text tonight is just another magnificent example of God's generous, extravagant grace for mankind. But at the same time, it also shows that God's grace is not just about feeling the warm comfort of God's blessing or the warm comfort of God's embrace. His grace makes demands of us. To receive God's grace... We have to do a few things, not to earn it, not to merit it, but in receiving God's grace, a couple of things happen. We have to admit our guilt before him and invite God to trade our sin for his salvation. He accomplishes the work. We don't earn it. We don't merit it. We're not worth it, any of those things. But for us to receive the grace of God, these things have to happen. This is an exchange, our sin for his salvation. That exchange is something God is, is eager to accomplish. But as we see through the Holy Scriptures, it requires death, right? Someone has to die to deal with our sin. And Christ died so that our sin could be dealt with once and for all. But now if we want to join in to his salvation then the Lord told us plainly that we also have to die, right? He says, take up your cross daily and follow me. Our hearts of flesh must be pierced by the grace of God, must be crucified and replaced with the heart of Christ. From that blow of grace, we rise from death to life, right? That's the idea. We are dead in trespasses and sins, and we're made alive thanks to the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, which we join in with, spiritually speaking, as we acknowledge and understand our guilt before God and then invite him to do the work that he wants to do in our hearts, Donald Kogan wrote this, it is a great thing to come under the magnificent tyranny of the gospel. Now, we don't like the word tyranny as Americans, right? But our rebellious human hearts need the reminder that God is king. And if I want to follow Christ, Jesus has said very plainly, I must lay down my life and lose it for his sake. For those who seek to save their lives on their own, apart from Christ, are going to lose them. But those who will lose their lives for Christ's sake will save them. In this story, our hero Joseph, he does some pretty sketchy stuff. Uh, for the next few, few chapters, he's doing some things that frankly make us wonder if he should have behaved this way. It's hard for us to kind of understand. He does things that make us think, oh, are you just acting out of spite? Are you acting out of vengeance? Are you acting out of revenge? Are you being a liar? Are you being a weird? What's going on? He does some strange things. God set Joseph apart 
for a very major work of providence, right? We're, we're gonna see, once again, in the book of Genesis, the incredible, particular, powerful providence of God working out for his special people in order that ultimately the Messiah could be delivered through Israel, right? And so Joseph is being set apart for a major work of providence. His actions are in some ways severe, but God's end purpose and Joseph's end purpose because of God's work in his life, the end goal was rescue, reconciliation, and redemption for this undeserving family. God was going to do a work of plowing up the hard soil of these men's hearts, and their hearts were hard. And so uh, as we read through this, uh, Joseph isn't really a model for how God wants you to treat other people in this case. Uh, He is a vessel that is being used by God for providential purposes. And as we look at this and say, man, it seems as if God is sort of treating these individuals roughly We need to remember that sometimes a human heart is very hard and needs to be plowed through like like the hard valley ground, right? Uh, The other day, we had a problem with our garage. The garage got bent. Uh, It's a roll-up, you know, rolling-up door, and one of the things got bent so it wouldn't open properly. Well, I couldn't just go over there and do this to it to make it open (laughs) properly, or I couldn't give it a little pat. Like, I had to hit that thing. You know, and then I had to kind of shake it, and then I had to go to the other side, and I had to hit that thing again, and I finally got it bent back into shape. Why? Because it's a hard door. It's made out of metal, and it wasn't responding to my, my, my kind ovations to it. Please open. I don't want to be stuck in my garage, right? And so we understand that. Sometimes a bone has to be broken by the doctor and reset in order to heal properly. And so as we look through this, we say, man, what is Joseph doing? What's up with all of this? Is this weird? Is God being too rough with the sons of Jacob? Is Joseph being out of, out of line and ungracious to them? Remember, we're, we're seeing the unfolding of, of particular providence here. And we also need to remind ourselves of who these guys were. And we'll get to that in just a minute. Verse one begins this way. When Jacob learned that there was grain in Egypt, he said to his sons, why do you keep looking at each other? Listen, he went on, I've heard that there's grain in Egypt. Go down there and buy some for us so that we will live and not die. So the sons are looking at each other. Jacob is looking at Egypt. From what we're told, no one is looking to the Lord. No one talks to him. No one praises him. No one petitions him. Later, in a few chapters, God is going to appear to Jacob personally, and he's going to tell him straight on, go down to Egypt. Don't be afraid. It's what I want you to do. But in the meantime here, this family is being swept along by their life circumstances. And the result of being swept along by circumstances, as opposed to being guided by God and by his revelation, the result for this family in this period, in the next couple chapters, is a lot of anxiety and hand-wringing and hurt feelings and confusion. And God doesn't want that for us. He doesn't want confusion for us. He doesn't want worry and anxiety for us. Specifically, he says in his word, these are things I don't want for you. You're not always gonna know what's happening in your life. Your circumstances aren't always going to be good, but I am a God of peace and a God of direction and a God of comfort. And I wanna give you those things as you navigate life. But in these chapters, 42, 43, the family of faith, they don't experience any of those things, but we also notice that they are not in communion with the Lord. They're not worshiping him. They're not praying to him. They're not talking about him, those sorts of things. 
Don't forget to seek the Lord in your life circumstances. David, the poet king, said this, seek the Lord and his strength, seek his face always. As readers, we know that God had a plan and he had provision, but the family was in the dark because they did not seek out the light. Another thought here, Jacob and sons were facing a very serious situation in their lives. He says, hey, we're, we're talking about a life and death situation. We're talking about starvation. This is a serious famine, right? So they understand the gravity of the situation. They assumed that the answer to their problem was going to be to throw money at it, right? He says, hey, get down there, bring some silver, buy some food. We'll throw money at this problem and it'll be all better. Money was no object. They were very wealthy. They had tons of silver, And so Jacob said, hey, just go buy food and that'll solve our problem. But as we track through this story, we're gonna see that the the money aspect of all this was all neutralized, right? If you know the story, you know that the, the money does not help them at all. In fact, it ends up causing more of a problem for this family in this situation. So listen, money, finances, having money is, is incredibly useful and can be very helpful in hard circumstances. But we always wanna remember as God's people that money is not the answer to life's problems. And money is not the savior or the rescuer for hard situations. The Lord may may allow us to use money to better our situation or the situation of others. It's not that we need to become ascetic and everybody empties all their money and and walks away from it forever. That's not what the, the Bible teaches. But we need to always remind our hearts that money is not the answer to life's problems. Verse three says, so 10 of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain from Egypt, but Jacob did not send Joseph's brother Benjamin with his brothers for he thought something might happen to him. Jacob has another outbreak of favoritism here. We saw it earlier with Rachel, his wife, and then with Joseph, and now it's Benjamin. This family is still extremely dysfunctional. I mean, really, really, really dysfunctional. Uh, luckily, God can bring beauty from the ashes of their relationships. I mean, a lot of their relationships, as we'll see, are, are absolutely in ashes. You may have a dysfunctional family. I'm guessing no one here has had a member of their family sell another member of their family into slavery. I'm guessing. I'm not saying it's outside the realm of possibility, but the averages are that nobody here has had one of their family members trafficked by another family member, right? Right? That's the kind of family we're talking about. And God says, I can work with this family. I can bring this family back from the brink. I can bring beauty from the ashes of their dysfunction. And that is a great comfort. It seems strange that he would send all 10 sons, leaving the the families and the children exposed for an extended period of time. Why not send a delegation of servants or just one or two sons? Uh, We're not exactly sure. Again, the Lord is accomplishing a very specific uh, logistical and physical and spiritual work throughout this situation. But it's also possible that Egypt had a per capita uh, rule uh, in the distribution of grain. People were coming from nations all over to be saved from this famine, and they were going to have to ration the grain very wisely. And so it's possible that they would only give a certain amount of grain for each family unit represented by a member of that family packing up their donkeys, I'm sure these guys were wondering why their dad didn't seem to care if they lived or died on the journey, like little brother Benny, huh? Seems like he's real worried that Benny might get into some trouble, and what about the rest of us? Uh, 
it's, it's funny unless you had to live it. Unless you had to wake up and live day in and day out knowing that, you know what, my dad doesn't actually love me. And I'm sure that some of you have had to experience that kind of feeling from someone in your family. And the Lord knows, and the Lord loves you. The Lord is your father, and he has comfort for you, and he has affection for you and tender care for you. Uh, But this would have been a very hard family situation to endure day after day. Verse five, the sons of Israel were among those who came to buy grain for the famine uh, was in the land of Canaan. Joseph was in charge of the country. He sold grain to all its people. Hold there. Refugees were pouring over the borders of Egypt. Thank goodness for Joseph's compassion. Thanks to God's grace, Egypt had more than enough to supply them all, and they did. And because of it, countless thousands of people lived instead of dying. In the long line of hungry travelers, God saw his people, his special people. There they are in the midst. And we know that he had more than just a plan to fill their pantry. God wasn't doing all this just so that they could have a few more loaves of bread. He he had a, a, a much wider plan to be with them and guide them and help them and establish them and bless them and then use them to be a blessing to the rest of the world. And in the meantime, fill their pantries so that they would have some bread. But it's a, such a great reminder here that in this great big world of needs and hurts and difficulties, you can be sure that the Lord knows, the Lord sees, he watches over your life. He really does. He's that powerful, he's that caring, he's that loving that he sees you and he knows you. And we may say, Lord, the pantry is empty and I am hungry. It's not news to him. We may wish he would do something different or do something sooner or whatever, but it is not news to him. He is not surprised by it. And he has not written you off as an inconvenience that he would rather not deal with. He sees and he knows and he watches over you. The God Almighty thinks of you. And he has passionate, tender provision for you and for your future. Verse six continues, his brothers came and bowed down before him with their faces to the ground. When Joseph saw his brothers, he recognized them, but he treated them like strangers and spoke harshly to them. Where do you come from? He asked. From the land of Canaan to buy food, they replied. Although Joseph recognized his brothers, they did not recognize him. At age 17, Joseph uh, had told them about those dreams that he had, and they angrily responded, oh, really, you think you're going to rule over us? And they were really mad about it, Uh, not just fighting mad, they were killing mad uh, over it. But you know, like the crowd at the foot of the cross, these men unwittingly fulfilled prophecy. They proved God's word to be absolutely true, absolutely literal, even when they hadn't wanted it to be. They had no intention of ever bowing down to Joseph. They had no desire for that to become true, whether it came from the Lord or not. But you know what? God speaks and it is done. Let God be true and every man a liar. You can go there to the gospels and see the people at the foot of the cross saying things that they were predicted to say hundreds and hundreds of years before, where in the Psalms they said, here's what the people at the foot of the cross are gonna be saying. And then these people blaspheming and mocking God and spitting at Christ are repeating the thing that God had said so many centuries earlier. Uh, God knows what's up. And when he tells us that something is going to happen, uh, it is done. Joseph is harsh with his brothers. 
Shouldn't he have just immediately forgiven them and not put on this whole ruse? What's the deal? We're left to wonder why exactly he did what he did. But along the way, we can see perhaps hints of his thought process. We certainly can see currents of compassion, even as he's bringing down heaven's blow of grace on these guys. He could have had them all killed for what they had done. He would have been well within his rights, well within his power. As prime minister of Egypt, he had effectively limitless power. No one would have batted an eye, and he didn't. Instead, we'll see he is concerned for their families, their hunger, their plight, their future. As for forgiveness... It seems clear that Joseph decided he needed to test his brothers to see what sort of men they were after more than 20 years of separation. It's been about 21 or 22 years since he's seen his brothers. And he needs to see what kind of men they are. Remember, these men were not just bad brothers, right? Maybe you have a brother that is not such a good brother. These are not just rude brothers. These men are killers. They are thieves. Some of them had committed incest. They sold their own flesh and blood into slavery. Some of them are trying to overthrow their father and take his place. I mean, bad, bad, bad things are happening. The real work was about hearts, not hunger. God was drawing these men, these killers, to repentance and reconciliation. Their hard hearts would need tenderizing. How is it possible that they didn't recognize Joseph? It's one thing, you, you know, it's one thing to not recognize somebody from high school 20 years ago, right? It's another thing, okay, this is your brother. You grew up with him. How, how did they not recognize him? Number one, we kind of get the impression in the Bible that nobody could really see anything. How many, how many, how many people here are glasses or contacts wearers? All right, how much are you going to recognize if we all pop our glasses off? Some people do better than others, right? Well, let's set that aside for a second. Uh, <clears throat> he had been a teenager when they last saw him. He's a full-blown, like, 39-year-old man now. His head was totally shaved, no beard, no hair. He would be wearing ceremonial makeup on his face, at least on his eyes, wearing all Egyptian clothing, maybe some kind of awesome weirdo head thing that's, that, <laughs> that you see in the hieroglyphics, right? He's speaking a foreign language. He's probably separated from them at some distance on some big throne. Uh, you know, I mean, maybe there's those weird cat things around. I mean, there's, so there's a lot going on. And so it's altogether realistic that they wouldn't recognize him, aside from the fact that, let's say there's somebody that you were friends with that you did know, and you, in, in one sense, would recognize them, but if you had absolutely no indication that you would see them that day, I'm sure that's happened to you, it happens to me all the time, you see somebody in a store, they recognize you, and you're, at best, you're like, I think I know that person, ooh, I don't know if I know them, so that's what's going on. Verse nine, Joseph remembered his dreams about them. And he said to them, you're spies. You've come to see the weakness of the land. You know, we love scenes in movies where everything suddenly comes together and ties together a bunch of images or, or happenings earlier in the movie, Sixth Sense style. Whoa, everybody's freaking out. He was dead the whole time. Oh no. 
right? But Joseph, he recalls his dreams in this instant. And, and the impression we're given is that he hadn't really thought about his dreams in a long time. And that makes sense. Earlier when his sons were born, he said, yeah, man, I've forgotten my family. I've forgotten my home. I live here now. I love the Lord, but I'm working in Egypt now. This is my life. This is you know, what the Lord has given me. And so it seems that he hadn't really thought about his dreams in quite a long time. And then his brothers show up and it like triggers uh, all of these understandings and all of, the, all of this recall. He remembers the sheaves and the bowing and the raining over stars. It's all falling into place, all coming together. And it seems that he realized, at least in part, that God was using him to bring his family all together down to Egypt. Because that's certainly the goal he starts working towards. It's clear that from this point out, his goal is to get everybody to Egypt. And finally, when he reveals himself to his brothers, he says, hey, it's me, it's Joseph. We got to all get to Egypt. The famine's going to be much worse. And so we're going to come here and you're going to live and not die. And so all of this seems to be happening very quickly in his mind. He challenges his brothers to reveal what their mindset and their motives were. He wants to get them talking and see where they're at in life. He had known them as brutal, hateful men ready to exploit anyone. They had stripped him naked, thrown him down a well. He knows they aren't spies, but are they still cruel killers like they had been? Verse 10, no, my Lord, your servants have come to buy food. They said, we're all sons of one man. We're honest. Your servants are not spies. No, he said to them, you've come to see the weakness of the land. But they replied, we, your servants, were 12 brothers, the sons of one man in the land of Canaan. The youngest is now with our father and one is no longer living. And Joseph said to them, I've spoken, you are spies. That's our Mandalorian moment for you Mandalorian people. I have spoken. There you go. We connected it, pop culture. So some of what they said was true and some of it was not so true. A lot of words could be used to describe this group of guys. Honest was not really high on the list. They were being honest about not being spies, but I find it interesting that at some point, you notice they started to believe their own lie. Joseph is dead, they said to their father, right? They had no evidence of that. They had, it had never been told to them that Joseph was killed. They had many reasons to believe that, well, yeah, he's alive somewhere in some tar pit, you know, slaving since we sold him for a few pieces of silver. And so they, they didn't actually have any reason to think that he was actually dead, but they had told the lie so often it took hold of their hearts. And so now when they bring it up, they're like, oh yeah, our other brother's dead. Bruce Waltke notes this, the covenant family must be more than honest. It must show loving loyalty to one another. And that's something that wasn't true of this group, not yet. They had money, they had flocks, they had history. Did they have Hesed? Not yet. Joseph was gonna find out. Verse 15, this is how you will be tested. As surely as Pharaoh lives, you will not leave this place unless your youngest brother comes here. Send one from among you to get your brother. The rest of you will be imprisoned so that your words can be tested to see if they are true. If they're not, then as surely as Pharaoh lives, you are spies. So Joseph imprisoned them together for three days. So we sense that Joseph is quickly putting together a strategic plan his dreams are going to be fulfilled, but they are not all the way fulfilled as long as Benjamin and Jacob stay in Canaan. All of them had to be there in his presence, bowing before them as he administered a rule over them. 
Joseph focuses his efforts on first bringing the 11th brother to Egypt and then ultimately the rest of the family. He recognized that God, in a sense, had made him the ark for this family's survival. Remember, the Lord told Noah way back early in Genesis, he said, what, bring in the animals that they may be saved. Judgment is coming. Bring the animals in two by two, and that way they will be rescued. And then God worked with uh, Noah in order to accomplish that rescue plan of bringing the animals in. And so now Joseph himself is the vessel set apart for the salvation of God's people. And he will say as much when he finally reveals himself to his brothers, he's going to say, God sent me ahead so that I could be here to rescue you when the time came. And so he is the ark. He is the ram that God provided. And it seems like he recognizes this. And he says, okay, I want to gather my family to me so that I can be the instrument of God's providence and grace and salvation for them. He knows the famine still has five long years left to go. Kenneth Matthews points out that after three days in the clink, the brothers were unable to choose who would go free. He said, one of you is going to go free go sit in a jail cell for three days. And at the end of three days, they have nothing to say. They don't say, hey, okay, we figured it out. This guy's gonna go back, you know. Uh, They're just sitting there silent. They've made some progress in unity, but they are still a fractured bunch. Verse 18, on the third day, Joseph said to them, I fear God, do this and you will live. If you are honest, let one of you be confined to the guardhouse while the rest of you go and take grain to relieve the hunger of your households. Bring your youngest brother to me so that your words can be confirmed. Then you won't die. And they consented to this. There's a lot going on here. First, Joseph shows compassion and care for their hungry families. He's not acting out of vengeance. He wants to give short-term relief while working toward full-blown rescue long-term. Second, we see that even in his compassion, he does back them into a corner where they will have to make a decision. They're going to have to make a life, a moral, a spiritual decision. He says, prove what you've said and then you won't die. And the suggestion is maybe that he would hunt them down if they didn't return. And so on the other hand, if they don't settle accounts with this powerful prince, they and their families are going to starve to death. And so he he has structured this test so that they would face death at every road, at the end of every choice they made, unless they submitted and obeyed and came clean. And then he was ready to give them mercy and grace and salvation. Third, Joseph invokes Elohim. He said, I fear God. Now, this would have been an interesting moment, I believe. He didn't say, I fear Ra. He didn't say, I fear Osiris. He said, I fear Elohim. Now, that is not a personal name, uh, and it's certainly not the personal name Yahweh, the God of Abraham. Elohim was a sort of international title at this time. It was a generic, more of a title than a name, Uh, It still refers in many scriptures to God, Jehovah, but it can also refer to um, some other individuals as well. But it would have been a signal to this group of Hebrews. And this was the universal term for the highest God who ruled the universe. And he kind of says, hey, I fear Elohim. You know him, right? 
The Old Testament reveals that the pagan nations did have a concept of this Elohim God. The Philistines and Abraham discussed him back in Genesis 20. Later in 2 Chronicles, Pharaoh Necho is going to tell King Josiah, listen, Elohim spoke to me and and he told me to do what I'm doing, so don't get in my way. There was a cultural understanding that when a city had the fear of Elohim in its midst, the people would be safe there. A thousand years after Joseph spoke about fearing God, Homer would write the Odyssey. And it's interesting, in it, he said that the test of a God-fearing men, if you were God-fearing, it meant the test would be, did you show love to strangers? Or were you cruel and brutal to them? He, and, and he wrote in, so there's this cultural understanding. If you feared God, you would treat people a certain way. And so Joseph is signaling to his brothers He wasn't ready to reveal his identity, but he does play a card here. He does show them a little bit of his hand, hoping his brothers would make a free will choice to do what is right and for them to fear God themselves. He says, listen, I fear Elohim. You know him, right? Do you fear Elohim? And so he's pushing them to a moment of decision. This moment of mercy, he's showing them mercy, sending nine back home instead of just sending one back home. Well, that moment of mercy finally got the brothers thinking spiritually. And the Bible tells us that it's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. It is God's merciful kindness that makes us realize, oh man, God is good and I am bad. I am sinful and I need to fall on his mercy. Let's look at their spiritual thought here. Verse 21, they said to each other, obviously we're being punished for what we did to our brother We saw his deep distress when he pleaded with us, but we would not listen. This is why this trouble has come to us. But Reuben replied, didn't I tell you not to harm the boy? You wouldn't listen. Now we must account for his blood. They did not realize that Joseph understood them since there was an interpreter between them, which by the way, okay, but the interpreter understood you. So (laughs) these guys, you're just not thinking, man, like you're confessing to a crime. Yeah, Yeah, anyway, I think that's funny. Joseph turned away from them and wept. And when he turned back and spoke to them, he took Simeon from them and had them bound before their eyes. So Reuben lashes out. He tries to absolve himself of any guilt regarding Joseph. It was his idea to throw Joseph into the cistern. Now, yes, the other brothers wanted to kill Joseph outright. He said, no, 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 let's just throw him into the well. But he was unwilling to stand up to his brothers and simply stop them and say, absolutely not, Reuben. He's the firstborn. He had authority over these guys. He was too much of a coward to say, we're not gonna harm our little brother no matter how much we hurt him. Instead, let's throw him into a cistern, which led to him being sold into slavery. And so he's trying to like con his way through life. Poor Reuben, he never has any ideas that work out. All of his ideas are bad. All of his ideas are stupid. All of his ideas are self-centered and thinking, well, it was you guys that didn't listen, not me. And it's like, hey man, you're in this cell because of you and you need to own up to it. For the first time, the brothers admit what they've done. They even echo God's word from Genesis 9 talking about requiring life for life, blood for blood. And they admit, very important, they admit we're guilty. We did this and it's time to pay the piper. As we see the blow of grace is, is plowing up their hard hearts. For the first time, they call Joseph their brother. Earlier, when they were speaking about him, back when all of this stuff was, was happening, they wouldn't call him their brother. They said to Jacob, your son, does this belong to your son? He's not our brother, he's your son. 
And finally here, we see a work of grace plowing up their hearts and they say, you know what? We did this to our brother and we're guilty. And so God is drawing them to himself. In this moment, Joseph doesn't laugh, he weeps. And so it reveals this isn't about spite or revenge. He isn't trying to hurt them. God's working to heal these individuals. And so Joseph orchestrates a test. He holds Simeon back. Now, Simeon is not the firstborn. And Joseph knows that Simeon is not particularly well-liked by their father. And so Simeon was one of the more expendable brothers in one sense. Would they leave him hanging? Would they run away from the grace they were being shown and try to hide from the judgment they so much deserved? Would they sacrifice Simeon to save themselves or would they do what's right? Verse 25, Joseph then gave orders to fill their containers with grain, return each man's silver to his sack and give them provisions for their journey. This order was carried out. They loaded the grain on their donkeys and left there. At the place where they lodged for the night, one of them opened his sack to get feed for his donkey and he saw his silver there at the top of his bag and he said to his brothers, my silver has been returned, it's here in my bag. Their hearts sank Trembling, they turned to one another and said, what has God done to us? Compared to Noah and Abraham, these fellows weren't very faithful. They believed God was ready to curse them, but they certainly didn't live as if he wanted to help them. George Costanza once said, God would never let me be successful. He'd kill me first. He'd never let me be happy. And his therapist was puzzled. She said, I thought you didn't believe in God. And he responds, I do for the bad things, <laughs> right? And... and The sons of Jacob are acting a little bit like that. They believe God's here to curse us. Well, maybe God was gonna be there to guide you and to help you and to do what he had promised to do through your lives and your family all the way back in, in the life of Abraham. Meanwhile, this is what God says. What's God doing to us? Here's what God says to his people. Give my people this message. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord look with favor on you and give you peace. That's God's heart for you. That's God's heart for me. That's what God wants to do for us. God wanted to help these guys and guide them and establish them and strengthen them. With that said, this silver situation was serious. This is the kind of thing that gets you impaled on a pole in Egypt. Uh, This is a big deal. And Joseph's move to do this accomplishes two purposes. First, it would test their supposed honesty. They say, oh, we're honest men. He's like, let's see. Let's see just how honest you are. He knew they would inevitably, no matter what they chose, they would have to come back to Egypt for more grain eventually. And so he sets this little trap to see how honest they are. And then second, it was also an act of tender generosity and care that Joseph could secretly do for his needy family in their time of, of struggle. They would need silver. They would need resources. He knows that, even if they don't know it, but he couldn't just openly do it, so he secretly did it. The Hebrew says their hearts went out. More than ever, they were doomed men. They could no longer claim to be honest before Joseph. Instead, if they came before him again, they would have to throw themselves on his mercy, which Joseph fully intended to give them. The choice was going to be the brothers, though. Your goodness, your honesty, your not as bad as the guy next door life are not enough to save you from death. Only the grace of a merciful God through the generous sacrifice of Jesus Christ can save you. 
He fully intends to extend mercy to you and to me and to anyone else who will receive it and to fill our lives with his grace, but it is our choice. He says, I wanna do this. Do you want me to do this? Verse 29, when they reached their father, Jacob, in the land of Canaan, they told him all that had happened to him. And the man who was the Lord of the country spoke harshly to us and accused us of spying on the country. We told him we're honest and not spies. We were 12 brothers, the sons of the same father. One's no longer living, and the youngest is now with our father in the land of Canaan. The man who's Lord of the country said to us, this is how I'll know you're honest. Leave one brother with me. Take food to relieve the hunger of your household and go bring back your youngest brother to me and I will know that you are not spies, but honest men. I'll then give your brother back to you and you can trade in the country. As they began emptying their sacks, there in each man's sack was his bag of silver. And when they and their father saw their bags of silver, they were afraid. So they still don't own up to Jacob about what they did to Joseph, even though they recognize that they are guilty of that sin. The coup de grace hadn't finished its work, but their fear reveals that they were understanding more and more that they would have to face a reckoning. Luckily, the prince who would decide their fate was a prince of peace and mercy and love. Verse 36, their father Jacob said to them, it's me that you make childless. Joseph is gone, Simeon is gone, and now you wanna take Benjamin. Everything happens to me. Jacob's hard heart uh, is on display here. Childless? I mean, even if he lost Joseph and Simeon and Benjamin, all tragic to be sure, he still had nine sons right there before him and tons of grandchildren. But he reveals once again, he really doesn't care about them very much. Think of poor Simeon. Jacob said, oh, he's just as dead as Joseph. No, dad, maybe you misunderstood us. Uh, He's not dead. In fact, we can like bring him back to you in like two weeks if we just know Simeon's dead, consider him dead. If you want to take his tent, go for it, right? (laughs) It's like really sad. He's just writing him off as dead. He's not saying, let's send silver, let's send a delegation, let's send an offering of peace. He's just dead. Divvy up all of his stuff. Man, that's messed up. Here's an important principle we can learn from Jacob's attitude. Selfishness kills. This selfishness that he is allowing to dictate his choices would eventuate in the death of the whole family if left unchecked. His refusal here puts them on a path that ends in not only in in, in broken hearts, but ends in starvation. And eventually they're gonna have to come to him and they say, if you don't stop what you're doing, we're all going to starve to death. And they have to kind of shake him out of his selfishness. H.A. Ironside wrote, many professing believers are so terribly self-centered. They are always looking inside and always seeking blessing for themselves. That isn't the ideal Christian at all. The ideal Christian is one who is resting in Christ for his soul's salvation and his great concern becomes the salvation of others. Verse 37, and Reuben said to his father, you can kill my two sons if I don't bring him back to you. Put him in my care, I'll return him to you. But Jacob answered, my son will not go down with you for his brother is dead and he alone is left. If anything happens to him on your journey, you will bring my gray hairs down to Sheol in sorrow. 
Our Kent Hughes sees Jacob's anguish and is reminded that Paul taught us how to properly gauge sorrow in our lives. Jacob's full of sorrow here, and, and sorrow isn't on, it, on its own a bad thing, but the Bible gives us as Christians an understanding of how to gauge if our sorrow is proper or not. In 2 Corinthians, Paul teaches us that godly sorrow produces repentance, which leads to salvation without regret. That does not describe Jacob. Paul goes on to say, worldly sorrow produces death. That's exactly what Jacob's sorrow is producing here. Reuben's plan is absurd. It's also cowardly. Judah ultimately takes control of the situation in the coming passages. And when he does, he offers himself, not some substitute to take the fall for him. That's real leadership. To go back to Egypt would risk death or imprisonment on account of the silver. To stay where they were meant death by famine. Their only hope was the mercy and grace of a powerful ruler, but to receive that grace, they would have to die to self, admit their guilt, obey his commands. God's grace is ready to be poured out for us. Are we ready to receive heaven's coup de grace into our hearts? and allow him to plunge into us with his truth, with his grace and his mercy, and then say, Lord, we surrender. And I want to be raised from the deadness of my sin into new life, into the fullness of your grace, thanks to all that you have accomplished on my behalf. That's the question. 